I would want to focus on the space that is safe and comfortable for the baby and for the parents or parents, making it cozy, considering the baby's perspective in designing it. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's okay. I was going to say it's been two weeks. How are you? Oh, you know, getting through the season. Mm-hmm. Cold weather always starts to make me want to hibernate and I'm trying my best to not hibernate. Everybody's sick. Everybody's tired. Mm. Everybody's sick and tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we had a Halloween event yesterday and Summer, my 17-year-old, she went as Carrie. Oh, nice. <laughs> so she had the prawn dress and the tiara, and then I got to pour like fake blood all over her. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Morgan wants to be a devil this year for, for Halloween. Ooh, classic. I like it. Mm. Nothing wrong with the classics. Mm-mm. Do you know what the study of ecology is? <sighs> I feel like I should, but I I don't think I could give a educated definition. So I think like the bare bones basic definition is someone who studies how living things relate to each other and interact with each other within their environment. So today's guest is Dr. Anya Dunham, and she's an ecologist who decided to take her training, her scientific training and area expertise and apply it to child development. So basically how the infant relates to other people in its environment and with their environment themselves. And she talks a lot about how to design a nursery to support that nurturing environment. And that's what she's going to talk to us about today. Very cool. It's a very unique approach, I think. But first, there was this study that came out. I just was reading about it. You know those like uh, formula making machines? Yeah. Keurig, but for formula. Yeah. Well, if you're using one of those for the convenience, you might want to be careful because the study revealed that I think it said like 80% of them are not heating the water hot enough to kill the bacteria. Oh, it's supposed to sanitize the water? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yes, it's twenty-two. only 22% heated it up to kill the harmful bacteria in the infant formula. There was another issue too in the U.S. like a few months ago. Do you remember this? Where so the the little measuring how it measures out the formula was actually inaccurate. I don't. I don't think I heard about that. I think this was like maybe six months ago, and I remember that it was a huge deal because like a couple of babies actually got hospitalized because of that because it wasn't measuring out the formula to the water proportions correctly. And so now they're saying that you know it doesn't even kill off the bacteria in the formula. So maybe. Despite the super convenience, it might be something to avoid if you're considering using one of these machines. Is it really more convenient, though? Or is it just a fun gadget? I don't know. I think 
I think I would find it more convenient. <laughs> I find a Keurig more convenient. Too. Like I don't use one because, you know, throwing those pods away just makes me feel like an evil person. Yeah. Plus expensive. Plus, yeah. Also, I live with a Colombian who drinks two pots a day. So no one's making single cups over here. Okay. It's just not happening. Yeah. But I think I find the Keurig's convenient enough where I'd probably find one of those machines. Convenient enough, but not so convenient that I would risk mismeasurement of the formula or bacteria in the formula, unfortunately. Hopefully they can improve on these machines and make them safer to use. Well, it's kind of like wearable pumps, right? They're fantastic right now, but I see them in the future being much better. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. Now let's do our question of the week. This week's question was submitted through Instagram. The question is pretty simple. Can I get pregnant while breastfeeding? Yes. Let's just get right to that. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Even if you are not ovulating, like even if you're not having your period yet, I should say. Yeah, if, you're, if your cycle has not returned, you can still get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Just ask my mother-in-law, whose children are only 13 months apart, and she breastfed both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my sister and I are 12 months apart. Yeah. <laughs> I was three months old when my mom got pregnant again. How? Yeah. Yep. I think about that a lot since I had kids and I'm like, how? My mom was a saint. Yes, there <laughs> is. There is. You might read about a form of birth control that people can follow while breastfeeding, but it's not not as reliable and you you have to fit like very certain specific situations. Like if you are using breastfeeding to hold off on fertility, your baby needs to be not using any pacifiers and not getting any bottles at all, at all, and needs to be feeding at least every three hours around the clock and needs to be under six months old. But if you can't check yes to that list of qualifications, your risk of getting pregnant drastically increases. Yeah. So I would have a form of birth control backup. And you got to be careful with birth control too, because some of them can take your supply. Yeah. Especially early, like before six weeks, you definitely want to be really cautious about hormonal birth controls. Right. Don't believe everything your OB tells you. I hate to say that. But <laughs> yeah, and don't believe everything you read online in Facebook groups too. Yeah. Like jumping backwards three times under the full moon is not going to keep you from getting pregnant. I try. <laughs> I want to risk it. Yeah, that was a great question. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer on the podcast, you can DM them to me on Instagram at Shelly Taft IBCLC. And up next, we will be speaking with Dr. Anya Dunham. If you've ever been overwhelmed with the idea of designing your nursery and how to set up your nursery so it has good function, but also good aesthetic and how your baby will feel in your nursery, which is something that most parents don't think of, I think, then you'll definitely want to catch this interview with Dr. Anya Dunham. Dr. Anya Dunham is a mom of three young children and a scientist studying how living things relate to one another and interact with their environment. 
She is the author of Baby Ecology, a book that looks at child development research through the unique lens of ecology and distills it down to building blocks of the nurturing environment that can be easily created in our own homes to give our babies the support and freedom to sleep well, explore happily, grow into adventurous eaters, and reach their full potential. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anya. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Anya Dunham, and I am a research scientist, a mom to three young kids, and an author. So in my day job, I study ecology, which is a branch of biology that looks at how living things interact with one another and their environment. And so most of my work to date has focused on baby animals and even more specifically baby animal habitats. So what, where they live and how that environment supports them and what they need from, from that environment. So it's a little bit of a different sort of background that I bring today, but the way that it's connected to babies is that when I first became a mom, which has now been 12 years ago, what I found as a new parent is this incredible amount of conflicting advice that we receive as new parents and just how often the polar opposite opinions on what babies need are backed up with at least some science. So you can always find perhaps at least a little bit of evidence to support these very conflicting opinions. And so when I was feeling sort of plunged into that sea of conflicting advice, what I decided to do is to wear my scientist hat and go and look at the research on babies first year through the lens of my field. So through the lens of ecology and see what is it that human babies need from the spaces they live in and the experiences that they have with us, the people in their lives. And so, of course, what I saw was not just one right way, but lots of different options, kind of like a range, like a beautiful rainbow range of options from which we can all choose what works best for our families. And so I wrote a book about it and in which I sort of describe everything that I found and all the different things about baby's first year. And it's called Baby Ecology. And in the, your book, you draw, it sounds like you draw on your background of studying these baby animals to help parents create a nurturing environment for human babies. That's right. So I tried to use my background, my knowledge as a scientist, and my ability to interpret scientific research and look at it with the heart of a parent. Like, what is it that us new parents need to know most about creating the most nurturing environments for our babies and sort of the environment that would nurture babies in general, but also be perfect for our unique babies and our unique family circumstances. And it's so true what you mentioned about the conflicting information. I mean, all you have to do is jump into any parenting Facebook group and ask a question and you will see the different opinions come through in the information. And you're right, like people will will link to studies that back what they're saying doesn't always mean the study is well done or, or even relevant or even saying what they're claiming. 
that it's really saying. But you're right. And that is something that my colleagues and I have talked a lot about over the last 10 years that I've been in practice is that you can find a study that backs up anything that you say. And what's more important is, do you have a study that was well done that is actually relevant to what the point that you're trying to make? Yes, exactly. And I think we can sort of find examples of that in every aspect of baby care that unless we see sort of like that whole body of evidence, the whole body of research and look at it carefully, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds and sort of go like, oh, yeah, there's a study that showed this. And often I think the studies that get picked up and shared on social media, often they're not actually indicative of the broader picture that the research shows us, but they're often something that maybe speaks to some of our fears or is really sort of headline inducing. And it's sort of like, oh, this is this big finding. But in fact, when we look at it carefully, it's only usually a small part of quite a large puzzle. And so, and usually things are not black and white, which I think is a a beautiful, important thing for all new parents to know, because it just really helps us understand that if something isn't working, there's usually a different way to approach it. Right. I think there's a big difference between trying to follow the letter of the law of the research versus the spirit or intention behind the research. Yes, absolutely. Designing a nursery can be overwhelming for new parents. I know I was super overwhelmed when I was pregnant with my first. And it doesn't help that we live in such a commercialized society, right? So you go to, at the time it was Babies R Us, and now I'm aging myself, but you go to, I went to Babies R Us and they printed out literally like 15 pages of products that I need. And then I was to go throughout the entire store and pick out which of one of these 15 products, brands, whatever I actually wanted to get. And it was so overwhelming because a lot of it is not even necessary to begin with. But some of it, I'm like, what would I even use this for? And I felt like I needed this stuff because the store was telling me you need this stuff. By the time I had my third, we had cut down on the products significantly. But what are some essential design principles to consider when parents are setting up their baby's room? Yeah, so I would say that when we look to science, there's probably about eight tips that all new parents can use. And I think maybe what I should start with is to say that the nursery doesn't have to be a separate room. Not all of us have the room. Not all of us want to set up a separate space for for the new baby. And quite often it can be a little nook in the parent's bedroom or in another space that is safely and comfortably set up for the baby and, and the rest of the family. In fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that babies room share with their parents for at least the first six months and possibly beyond. And so it's quite possible that in those early months, the nursery would function if it were a separate room it would still function more as a just the place to store all the baby things and maybe feed the baby so but it also could be a separate room as well if that's the space that we have and want to set up and so and back to the what I think of as sort of eight research-backed tips for designing the space well I think one the first thing that comes to mind is the color palette of the space 
And this is sort of, I think, one of those questions where we can get a lot of conflicting advice. And so sometimes we hear that the nursery should be black and white, or maybe it should have very contrasting primary colors because babies can see those colors best. And then other times we might hear, well, no, it's the opposite. It should be muted, very beige, very calm for the baby because we don't want to overwhelm the baby in their sleep space. And so when we look at the research, it's kind of neither, or maybe it's both. There really isn't a reason to stick to a very particular color palette. It's more about what the parents enjoy and what fits into the rest of their home. Because really it's true that babies can see contrasting colors best and that they cannot see very well when they're born. But actually vision develops quite a bit faster than what most of us might think, because by by two months, typically developing babies can scan their surroundings quite thoroughly, of course, focusing more on the parents' faces. And then by six months, they can see almost as well as adults. And so it's quite a fast process. And it does our kind of color environment does affect us and how we see color. And that's also true. But it's not like the baby would only be ever seeing the colors in the nursery. And so if the family prefers more of a muted, soft color palette, and maybe there's only just a few hues in the nursery, the baby will see so many more things. Like when they start having solids, they'll see lots of different fruits. And when they're outside, they'll see all the colors in the world. And so so color-wise, the nursery can be whatever it is that the parents would like. So even like a lime green or a neon green is fine. It's probably fine if that's yeah. what uh, what the parents like. Yeah, absolutely. There's some interesting research that shows that as adults, like adults who grow up above the Arctic Circle, who are exposed to polar night, see hues differently. They see more kind of better in the purple spectrum and less so in the green compared to adults who grew below the the Arctic Circle. So, but it's so subtle and so small and doesn't really, I'm sure, affect everyday life. So, so color is important, but the choice is really up to us. And so you mentioned, I think you said eight essential design principles. So color is one of them. Color is one, that's right. And so the next one that comes to mind is a good quality and of course, safe sleep surface. So I won't go into all the details about safe sleep because I think it could be a topic for a whole other podcast. And I know, Shelly, you have a couple of really great blog articles on the topic as well that I've seen. So, but in in brief, of course, we, we want to have a firm sleep surface with no blankets and no soft toys in the crib, no curtains or blinds hanging close by. But one thing that I really wanted to emphasize is a good quality, firm, natural mattress. And it's the one way to think about it is, you know, like you said, there's so many things that we can purchase for the nursery, including decorations and other things. But really, I feel like if, especially if we're in the budget, I would put the emphasis on a good mattress because if we look at how much the babies sleep, even if we look at the first three years altogether, 
the baby still spends more time asleep than they spend in all wakeful activities combined. So they could be in their sleep space a lot. And then their delicate skin and the airways, they're also close to their sleep surface. And so we want to have a natural mattress and mattress cover. Like I personally found it's not the only way, of course, but I personally found that a, a wool pad works really well as a mattress protector because it helps regulate the baby's temperature and it's natural and breathable. And so that was just one thing that has worked so well for us. So, and I guess maybe following along the lines of bedding and crib sets, something to skip is those fancy crib sets with the skirts and quilts and things like that. They could be so pretty and probably always come up on those lists of nursery gear that we see. But really, they're not only not very useful, but also not even recommended because they'd come with a quilt and a little pillow. And it's something we shouldn't be using until baby's out of the crib anyway, or at least until the crib sides come off and it converts to a toddler bed. And so those are just really not useful at all. I totally remember buying those sets when I had my first. And at the time, I think it was right after she was born, they came out with the new recommendations and no crib bumpers at all. So it's like, well, I just spent all this money on this bedding set. She can't have pillows. She can't have the quilt in there. She can't have the crib bumper. So it was nice for showing the, the neighbors, the nursery, like, look at how coordinated it is. But we didn't use any of it. Exactly, right? Because all really all we need for the bedding is those fitted crib sheets. And usually those sets maybe come with one and we, we need more than one and we don't need the rest of it. So can you go back to, you mentioned a natural mattress. Can you tell us a little bit more about what actually is a natural mattress? Yeah, I think, again, there is different options in terms of what what a good mattress would be. There's probably not a single mattress filler material that is a lot better than other options. But I think we want to have, we don't want to have sort of plastic in con like right underneath the sheet. So that's why I think a wool mattress cover would be good. And just something that is not going to off gas, not going to be kind of smelly in the same way that we would be choosing a good adult mattress. I would choose a good crib mattress. And of course, it has to be the certified for using in the crib and be the correct size so that it fits there snugly and safely. So that that would be probably the most important thing. And often mattresses come with a baby side and a toddler side, so a firmer side for the baby and a softer side for the toddler. And so when we place it in, we want to be mindful of what side we're using for the babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. And then, so maybe sort of following along the lines of textiles in the space, thinking about curtains and blinds. So we touched upon how, of course, no cords or curtains should be within baby's reach near the crib, but it's usually quite a good idea to have some way to black out the lights because in the first few months, babies are developing their circadian rhythms, their, their biological clock. And so it really helps them distinguish night and day. If we have light during the day and then we have dark, quiet, kind of boring space at night. So that their melatonin cycle, which is a hormone that supports circadian rhythm, can develop and they can 
get out of what a lot of babies experience in those early weeks and months, which is what we call the day-night confusion. One of my babies had it for probably the whole 12 weeks where she slept great during the day and did not sleep very much at all at night. <laughs> and even knowing, I think just knowing that that's normal was really helpful, but also kind of working towards helping her develop that rhythm eventually got us through those tough weeks. And so she napped in the daylight during those early, early weeks. And then we used actually both blackout curtains and blackout blinds to block out the street light that was shining directly into her room, which I think is quite often the case <laughs> for many of us. So I would recommend that's another item that I would recommend carefully choosing and perhaps investing some money into in addition to a good mattress. We probably want to have good blackout window coverings, whatever that might look. And, you know, sometimes people use very simple things when traveling, like even just taping plastic over a window and things like that. But in our homes, we probably want to have something that is a little more like durable and and um, comfortable to use. Yes. I love that you, you bring up the blackout blinds. I do feel like, and I love that you mentioned like during the day, letting your nap, your baby nap in the daytime in the sunlight and at, only at night cutting off all the light, because I think a lot of parents get confused or get the wrong information and they use blackout blinds in a, in a quiet, dark room for naps as well. And what I have found as a sleep coach is it does interfere with your baby's ability to develop a circadian rhythm because it's harder for them to tell when it's actually daytime and when it's actually nighttime. And then babies who are taught to nap in a completely quiet, completely dark room really have a hard time napping unless then they're placed in a completely quiet and a completely dark room. And maybe with your first baby, you can stay home and build your life around baby's nap schedules that you're always home to put them in the room. But if you have a second, you know, you've got to take your toddler to gymnastics. You cannot put your second baby on this strict nap schedule with these strict nap conditions and you end up kind of getting stuck. So I, I'm totally agreement with you on that. And I usually tell parents like during the day, let your baby sleep where life is happening, maybe in a bassinet in the living room or a pack and play in the living room, like let the house be loud and noisy because then your baby will learn to sleep through those things. And also I think babies sleep better when they can hear that the village is alive and well around them. That yeah, that's right. Happening. Yeah. Yeah. It just becomes their normal, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then maybe following the topic of light. So the one type of light that we would not want in the baby's sleep space would be the blue LED lights, such as lights from screens, because that actually does inhibit melatonin production and could make sleeping a little bit more challenging for our babies and also for ourselves. You know, how we, if we spend all the time on our phone before bedtime, it could make it challenging to fall asleep for, for many reasons. But one thing is to minimize the use of blue light when the baby's maybe falling asleep or for night lights, or if you are using a screen when you feed your baby is using not blue LED light, but a different, like maybe a warmer and a dimmer light than a bright blue LED. So that's just another way. And there's many ways to sort of create that. Like it could range from a completely screen-free dark, boring environment to maybe doing some of these modifications like, yeah. And then, so thinking about technology and screens. So from there, maybe we can jump to the sound machine. So 
sound machines are something that's quite often recommended for baby sleep and various sleep programs. And it's something that is reasonably well studied now. And so one recent study looked at a number of sound machines available. And what they found was interesting. When placed about a foot, about 30 centimeters away from the baby, most of those machines were at the loudest setting, were louder than recommended in the hospital nurseries. And some even exceeded occupational safety limits for adults. So they were quite a lot louder than what we want. And so the authors of the study recommended for families who want to use a sound machine to place it farther away from the baby, so not on the crib rail or right near the crib, and then perhaps use it for a limited time and not on the highest setting. And I think one thing that also makes sense in this case is we might kind of intuitively want to put the sound machine close to the baby because that's sort of always just so that they can hear it well, but actually makes more sense to put it to where, if we're using one, to put it where the source of the noise is coming from. So say if it's loud traffic outside or you know, construction happening right outside our window, we might put want to put it on the window. Or if we're trying to maybe mute the sounds of our toddler having a great time in the living room, maybe we'll put it closer to the door. And the other thing is we don't always need them. I think some babies, like you said, the babies can learn to sleep in whatever environments we have at home and they just get used to the hum of the household and that just becomes their normal. And so if we want to save the funds and not, we don't necessarily have to invest in a sound machine from the get-go, we could see how is that baby sleeping, how is our environment, and then just see if we even need one at all. Yeah, I agree. I With my first, I did not use the sound. I don't think with any of my kids actually use the sound machine and it was only because with my first, I was very young when I had babies and we were on a, an extremely tight budget. And I don't even think I put a sound machine on my list. And I ended up not needing one for any of my kids. And I could understand. And as a sleep coach, I often recommend them in certain situations. But sound machines at this point are presented as this general blanket need for all babies. And that's not true. Do some babies do a lot better with sound machines? Yes but that doesn't mean that every baby is going to do better with them or need them. Yeah, I also found that neither of my three babies needed them. We did try it, I think, with with our last and found no difference. So, so we borrowed it and we returned it. And um, so, yeah, so it's just, again, something that we can save kind of our money and our effort on and not use it. And if we do choose to use it, there are a lot of free apps, or at least several free apps that I know of that you can use to measure just how loud it is. And or another good way to sort of check how loud it might be is to think about what's the sound of like if you're in the bathroom and the shower's on, like that's about you don't really want it to be much louder than than that for the baby. So that's just another one I think of as, as a good uh, sort of way to to think about it. So then another tip is more practical so it's less science-based but more more of a practical tip is to make the space comfortable and kind of cozy and nice for ourselves and that includes things like creating a diaper changing station in that space even if our main diaper changing station might be in the bathroom or another area because at night 
most babies still need diaper changes for the first few months in the middle of the night. And so it could be nice to have that changing station set up right next to the baby's sleep space so that we don't have to carry them out of the room and potentially into brighter light and, and things like that. I actually found it easiest to change mine on the floor as soon as I was physically able because that didn't require any additional furniture, like a, a change table or a certain size of dresser. And I could move the changing area with me wherever I needed it. So that was, uh, and also, of course, they could not fall off the floor, which was really, really good because my babies could roll really early and you just never know, right? So, but of course, it could also be a changing table or a dresser with a changing pad or just on the bed for younger babies or on the floor. And then and that the other thing to make ourselves comfortable is to have a good feeding chair or cuddling chair. Because I find that regardless of what kind of milk our babies receive, we're going to be spending a lot of time feeding them. And so being comfortable and well supported is really, really good. And it just creates because it makes us calmer when we're comfortable and that calm transmits to our babies as well. And just thinking about how many hours we'll be spending in that space, it's it's good to be comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I love that. One, one tip that I give parents too is if you are choosing to use a diaper changing table and you're you're out looking for which one to purpose, keep in mind the height. Because if you are a taller parent and you have to bend over significantly to change your baby's diaper and you're doing that eight to 10 times a day, your back is not going to appreciate that because I have made that mistake. I'm not a very tall person. I am 5'4". But for some reason, I had bought a changing station that was too low for me. I like them when they're at least hip height but it was a little bit lower. So every time I had to change my baby diaper, I was bending over and I had back issues and it just, I felt like it just killed me like doing that so many. And I ended up doing what you did. And I ended up just changing my baby on the couch or the floor because the changing table just was not the right height. So that is something that you'll want to consider when you're going out with your partner and deciding like, which furniture do we want to have? Because if your partner is like six, three and you're, you know, five, five, what works for you is probably not going to be as comfortable or work as well for him. Or yeah, that's such a good point. That's another one aspect that is totally worth thinking and put it, yeah, putting some thought and effort into is, is finding that because again, if we add up all that time that we spend changing, which could be a really nice time because if we're comfortable and we could it, this could be a really nice bonding time with the baby if we don't rush through it and we spend time talking to them and telling them about what's happening. And then eventually they start helping us with the diaper changes. It could be a really great kind of activity and bonding time, but we do want to be comfortable and not not have a sore back and thinking like, how could I do this as fast as possible, right? Yeah, totally. And the last but not least tip that I have is of course to have fun with designing the baby's space and to think about it from the baby's perspective. And that's sort of, it's an interesting thing that I learned from reading the research on baby's first year is this concept of mind-mindedness. And it's something that I think a lot of us practice intuitively, but often we don't know this exact term. And so what it means is 
it's something that helps attachment along with sensitivity. And sensitivity is something most of us have heard about and we're responding to our babies appropriately and warmly. But mind-mindedness is more of a way of thinking about our babies rather than a way of being with them. And it's a way of thinking about them from the very early days as sort of complete people with minds of their own. So not just like cute, sweet bundles of joy, but also as full people that are sort of unfolding in front of us. And studies do show that when we think about our babies in that way, babies tend to have better capacity for emotional regulation as they grow. So it's a little easier for them to kind of manage their emotions. And then when they become toddlers, it tends to be easier for them to understand the emotions of others around them and their own emotions. So it's sort of like teaching them that there are people and there are people around them and they were all unique in that sense. And so there are many ways that we can practice being mind-minded even before our babies arrive. And one of them might be to think about that nursery setup or their sleep space setup from their perspective. Like I remember just sitting where we were thinking of putting the crib and thinking about what would my daughter see from that vantage point. And like, I, of course, don't recommend climbing into the crib at that point. <laughs> that, that would not be wise for many reasons, but just sort of what would she see? Like how, if it comes to, you know, the window, the decorations in the room, or would she be able to see when someone walks into the, like through the door? And so that just helps consider the baby's perspective and then like how does the space feel overall like does it feel like a calm space or more of a busy space and and things like that so i think even before our babies arrive we could start thinking about their spaces the way that they might see them and when baby does arrive what are some ways that parents can incorporate mind-mindedness into their daily interactions with their baby yeah, there is. Um, there are a number of ways that we can do that. And so one of them is when we are with our babies, so say they're doing tummy time or they're just playing on the floor next to us and is to think about it, not as like describe it in your head, not as what is my baby doing necessarily, but what might she or he be thinking in that moment and, or feeling in that moment? And just observe without sort of necessarily jumping in to immediately fix it or change something, but look at them and, and think like, what are they doing? What is interesting to them? And what might be hard for them? What might they be working on? Like sometimes, you know, they when they're trying to roll and it looks like they're really uncomfortable, but it might be that they're actually just working on that last little bit of core strength just to get over that tiny, tiny hurdle and finally rolling. So things like that really help us get to know them and develop our parent intuition. Like that is to me is another thing that being mind-minded can help us is helping to understand our babies as unique people that they are and kind of grow with them alongside them. Because I think that's something that, that really helps on our parent journey much past the babyhood stage. Because I, I feel like I'm still definitely growing alongside my 
preteen and my early elementary aged kid as well, because they're changing so much all the time. Right. And I think when you first have babies, society teaches you like your baby's either crying, like crying is their only form of communication. Right. And I remember being taught that when I was pregnant, crying is a baby's only form of communication. And I remember teaching that to parents when I first started teaching. But now I know that it is not <laughs> baby's only form of communication. Your baby will communicate what they're feeling and what they want. You just have to know what to look for. Exactly. So, yeah. And I think another important part is that we might know that right away, right? Like we don't, because we have, we've only just met our baby when they're new and we've met ourselves as parents. And so it's okay not to know right away. Cause I, I remember that too, with my first, there was this idea that we would immediately know the different types of baby cries and immediately know what to do. And I think it's okay to give ourselves that space and time to get to know our babies. And like you said, to understand their the different forms of communication that this particular baby has and how they respond. And I think a lot of parents do that subconsciously as well. I have a lot of parents where they'll be in my office and their baby will start making certain faces or sounds and they'll say, oh, she's about to poop. That's his, I, I got a poop. And yeah. we'll do some bicycle legs to help them pass that gas or pass that stool. So I think a lot of parents do it subconsciously. Yeah, for sure. What are the benefits of, of practicing mind-mindedness? Like what are some benefits that parents can expect to experience? Yeah, so one one of them would be, of course, developing our parent intuition a little bit faster because that helps us get to know our babies the other would be for babies themselves. So they would feel, because they probably feel more seen as a person. And perhaps if we also name what we might be seeing in their emotions and, and their actions, it helps them connect with their feeling to the words that they might be that hearing now. So it helps them learn about emotions and it helps them learn that all emotions and feelings are okay and what the names for them are. And so that's perhaps why when babies who grow up in mind-minded environments, when they grow to be older babies and toddlers and eventually preschoolers and so on, it's easier for them to understand feelings and emotions and eventually to regulate their own and understand the emotions of others around them a little bit better. It also seems that at least a couple of studies show that babies who grow up in mind-minded environments, they play independently a little bit more as toddlers. And that might have something to do with just that little bit of understanding themselves a bit better and being securely attached to their caregivers and so feeling safe being independent around and near them and having that sort of secure base in their parents and being able to play around and explore independently a little bit more, which is, I think, a, a great thing for the babies and, and toddlers and for the parents as well. I want to jump back a little bit to the color palettes that you were talking about. And you had mentioned that it doesn't really matter which color you pick, like there isn't going to be a color scheme or a color palette that's going to do harm to your baby. Are there any specific color schemes or decor choices that can have a more positive benefit than other color palettes or color schemes? When we look to the science around it, I haven't come across any studies that would 
specifically point to any specific color scheme. So I think it come it goes back to the choices that we ourselves enjoy and that are calming and kind of aesthetically pleasing to us because I think our calm and our happiness also matters on its own and it helps our babies to stay calmer and more regulated. And so I think it just goes back to to what we enjoy and that would really differ from one family to, to another. Yeah, so it sounds like it all comes down to what is going to help you function well in the nursery and stay calm and stay regulated so that then you could teach your baby how to stay calm and regulated and manage their emotions. And yeah. I totally agree because if you have, you know, if you have a nursery that is just cluttered with stuff and every time you walk in there, you're like, oh, I got to take care of this, but I don't have the time. And now you're stressed thinking about all that stuff that's just everywhere you're trying to change your baby's diaper on a changing table that doesn't quite fit you. You don't really have a comfortable place to sit. I can see why that would just frustrate you and dysregulate you as a parent and therefore making it, you know, because your baby will pick up on that if you're dysregulated and stressed, they will sense that too. And then that room could potentially become a stressful source, a source of stress for them as well. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think maybe there is uh, just when you were talking about that, it reminded me about one other aspect is there's maybe one other reason to keep the space kind of better organized and less cluttered in a calmer space is because as babies grow, I, what often happens is they become more distracted when they're feeding. And sometimes for some babies, it helps to feed in what I would call a boring space as opposed to maybe out or at least during certain stages, like not always, right? Because we're going to feed babies wherever babies need to eat and whenever babies need to eat. But sometimes it's good to have a space where we can go if, you know, if the day is very busy and they just want to play. And so that's another reason to perhaps have a space where we can go and have that kind of quiet, calm feeding. And I found at least with two of my three, they, they, they went through a stage where, where that was really helpful is to have that calm, organized space that where there weren't very many visual distractions for them. And then as the baby gets older, you can turn that space into a reading nook where there's not a lot of distraction, but there's a comfortable place for them to sit. And there's some books that they can flip through. I love that. Yeah, that's right. In your book, Baby Ecology, you mentioned the importance of sensory stimulation, which you just kind of touched on too. But what are some of the creative ways parents can incorporate sensory elements into the nursery design? Yeah. So what's interesting about sensory stimulation and sensory sort of aspect of baby's development is that a sensitive window for sensory development does occur quite early in life compared to other things. And so the way babies experience the world in those early months and years really affects sensory integration. So how they integrate information from all the different senses. And when it comes to nursery, I think, again, in terms of aesthetic, 
and materials, it again can be anything that we like. But one way that we can help our babies' sensory development is to help them see different textures, maybe have them touch them and describe what they are. Describe, just even describe what is in the room to the baby. We can just as a pre-bedtime ritual, for example, we can walk around and show them and name the objects in the room and have them, if it's a safe object to touch, have them touch it or smell it, but depending on what it is. We had sort of, our, my family lives far away and so does my husband's, part of my husband's family. And we had pictures of family members on the wall instead of decorations. And we would walk around and talk about the people in the pictures and say goodnight to them even before our babies could talk. And that was just one one other way to sort of incorporate something you know, close to our hearts and, and, but also talk about the people. And then when they would see these people in real life, they, there was a bit of a connection established there already. And then we can look out the window and talk about the colors in the world and, and the sights. And one way that really helps with sensory integration development is when babies can experience something with as many senses as possible. Like, for example, they, they see a flower and they can smell it and they can touch it. And so some of these things are, easier achieved outside like you know when we but we can also do that at home and and say you know like look at a book and talk about how it feels and what it looks like and things like that and is there a way to balance providing a stimulating environment with those sensory practices and avoiding overstimulation although i have a feeling now that i'm asking this question out loud it's probably going to differ from baby to baby I think so. I, yeah. I agree with you. I think sort of the threshold of what what is too much with and what is optimal would differ from baby to baby. And I think that's where again having that time to observe our babies with that mind minded approach can really help us understand what sort of per little person is in front of us and what will be too much or what would be just right for them. And also I think that changes as they grow and as they develop. Like for example, if we're going through a big transition, say a transition to daycare or something like that, there's probably going to be a lower threshold. Like our baby might get overstimulated and, and tired faster than during a time that's outside of a, of a big transition like that. And so I think it goes back to, yeah, kind of observing each baby and following their interests. Like that to me is another important thing is that science has shown that the more we follow babies' interests, the better their vocabulary develops and the better their ability to explore independently develops. So for example, if baby shows an interest in something, in an object, and we talk about it, it's going to be easier for them to learn the names or colors or shapes associated with that object than compared to if we maybe show it on a flashcard and it has no like sort of reference to the baby's life and they can touch or explore it and if they they haven't perhaps even shown an interest in an object like that so following our baby's lead on that can be really helpful i imagine that that would be how you can adapt the nursery too as as the baby grows right because babies grow their needs change their interests change 
So maybe if there is a piece of decor that your baby was really into and is now not so much, or maybe it's super distracting to them, it's time to take it out or replace it. Yes, exactly. Or like, you know, if it's something like a mobile hanging over the crib, like that's something we haven't touched upon. And it's something that can be really f- a fun object to choose for the baby. It's certainly not something that's absolutely necessary, but it would be something that you could make or purchase for the baby to look at. But it's also, again, it's not necessary. And if it if you do have one, it's you could change it as the baby grows and their interests and preferences change as well. You mentioned that you studied baby animals in their in their environments. I'm just curious, were there any similarities, like universal similarities that you always found, even with human babies that are the same with baby animals? I think the the biggest similarity would be that all small creatures, they always need safety and they need nourishment. So that would be sort of across the board. And then with mammals, of course, they need they need protection. They need that the love of the, the caregivers, especially with like the for humans, of course. So for babies, for human babies needing that, having that protected environment where they're loved and safe and where they can develop at their own pace. I think that's sort of, that's the most, the most important thing after, after, well, it's the most important thing. (laughs) That's so cool. What final piece of advice would you give to an expecting or a new parent who is eager to create a nurturing nursery and practice mind-mindedness with their infants other than they should definitely read your book (laughs) what (laughs) other tips would you give yeah so I guess maybe to summarize I think I would want to focus on the space that is safe and comfortable for the baby and for the parents or parents making it cozy considering the baby's perspective in designing it and then putting the effort into The aspects that matter, such as the safety of the sleep space, the comfort, having the the sleep environment that helps the baby develop their naturally develop their sleep cycle, cycles and sleep rhythms, and just having fun with it because it could be such a it could be a really fun project on our to do list as we wait for our baby's arrivals and it need not be a stressful one. I love that. And I love how you view the baby as their own person with their own, like getting the input from your baby, because a lot of baby books and blogs kind of treat the baby as something you have to manage, right? And the fact that the baby is their own person with their own personality is kind of lost. Maybe until the baby gets a little older, usually when they start like smiling and laughing, the baby's like, oh, the personality is shining through. Well, the personality was shining through from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I think I society just teaches parents like you need to manage your baby instead of enjoying and nurturing your baby. So I love that you have that perspective. Where can parents find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you? I have a website, kidecology.com, and uh, there is a blog component to it, and there's a way to get in touch with me, which I absolutely love. And my book, Baby Ecology, can be found on Amazon and everywhere else that books are sold, and of course, can also be ordered through, through the local library, which is one of my favorite ways. 
And I'm also on Facebook, Anya Kidecology, and on Instagram as well. And I absolutely love it when readers or followers connect with me and ask questions. And I love your website. I love your your articles. You had one about making things for your baby that your baby will actually enjoy too. <laughs> that was really great. So I'll definitely put those links in the show notes for people to connect with you. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.